Welcome back. I'm your host, Julia Menezes, and you are listening to The Art of Change, an educational podcast devoted to understanding how change happens at individual, systems, and organizational levels. This podcast has been developed by the Office of Community Engagement at McMaster University. If you are a student listening to this podcast as part of the Art of Change course, welcome to week two. In today's episode, we'll be thinking about theories of change, asking questions like, how does change happen within and outside of organizations? How do individual citizens mobilize to make change? And what is the role of community engagement in this process? To investigate these questions, we will be looking at Hamilton's LRT, an ongoing transit project that has spanned more than a decade and centers around bringing light rail transit technology to the city of Hamilton, Ontario. On September 8th of 2021, Hamilton City Council voted 11 to 3 in favor of signing a memorandum of understanding with Metrolinx and the province of Ontario. This memorandum confirmed a plan to build 17 stops of light rail transit stretching from McMaster University to Eastgate Square. The process to get to this September 8th vote was long and complex, involving years of advocacy, route changes, delays, and whole project cancellations. As our guest today will tell us, calling Hamilton's LRT project complex is an understatement. In the first half of this episode, we're talking with Councillor Maureen Wilson and Ryan McReel about changing minds, asking how did citizens and political leaders get on board with the idea of an LRT in Hamilton, and why has it taken so long? In the second half of this episode, we're talking with Carl Andrus about leveraging change. Now that the LRT project has been approved, we're asking what is being done to ensure that this major transportation change benefits all community members? As we begin this episode, Maureen and Ryan will tell us a little bit more about how the LRT project got started and how they have approached advocating for this project. My name is Maureen Wilson, proud councillor for Hamilton City Council, representing Ward 1, which consists of four neighbourhoods, Ainsley Wood, Kirkendall, Strathcona and Westdale. In terms of my relationship to this project, I'm responsible for representing the interests of Ward 1, but also all of the city and its future. And so I'm trying my best to tell a story about a role of LRT in supporting some of our acclaimed goals and objectives and our vision. And my name is Ryan McGreal. I'm a resident of Ward 1 in Hamilton, so I'm very fortunate to have Maureen Wilson as my counselor. And um, I am, I guess, best described as a civic affairs gadfly. I am involved with a local website called raisethehammer.org, which is a place to discuss city building and municipal affairs. And I'm also a founding member of Hamilton Light Rail, which is a community organization of citizens in Hamilton promoting light rail transit. I first became involved in 2007, which it seems like a crazy number of years ago now that we talk about it. But in the summer of 2007, the Ontario government announced a 25-year sort of grand uh, plan to invest in rapid transit through the greater Toronto and Hamilton area. And their announcement included two light rail transit lands in Hamilton. 
which I thought was very exciting because in Hamilton, we've been talking about building rapid transit since at least 1960. So I was very excited and contacted some people at the city and said, okay, the province wants to build light rail transit. What are we doing? How are we making that happen? And nobody had any ideas. The city wasn't even thinking about it. Uh, a group of us realized that we had some work to do in order to try and raise the profile of this extraordinary opportunity among members of the public. So we formed Hamilton Light Rail, started holding public meetings where we uh, explained what LRT is and how it might benefit the city. And um, we also started having meetings with councillors and members of staff in order to try and get them thinking about this. And by the end of 2007, the city established a rapid transit office. And in 2008, they launched a rapid transit feasibility study. The rapid transit feasibility study allowed city staff to begin engaging with Hamiltonians, beginning in April of 2008 with two public meetings and several online polls. Following this engagement process, staff noted that there was a great interest in light rail transit among the public, especially as a way to support Hamilton's future economically and environmentally. By 2013, the city had developed a detailed LRT plan and request for funding, and they submitted it to the province for a funding consideration. And uh, then there was more delays and more politics, and a couple of elections happened in there. And it wasn't until 2015 that the province actually came back and confirmed full public funding for this plan. With the provincial government promising $1.2 billion of funding, the project seemed confirmed. But by 2016, worries including traffic congestion and property procurements along the LRT corridor had some questioning whether the LRT project would truly be beneficial to the city of Hamilton. It was a contentious issue, made clearest in March of 2017, when over 40 residents delegated to city council about the LRT in a council meeting that lasted over 13 hours. Throughout this time, Ryan, members of Hamilton Light Rail, and others continued to advocate for the project. At every step of the way, Hamilton Light Rail has been trying to, feel forgive the expression, keep this project on the rails. You know, continue reminding our civic leaders what the purpose is, why they agreed to it in the first place, and why it's still a good idea, and continuing to build awareness and understanding among the public so that people understand why this is a project worth fighting for. In 2018, after some route changes and an environmental project report, a request for proposals to design, construct, and operate Hamilton's LRT was finally issued. Then, in 2019, a newly elected provincial government decided to cancel the project entirely. The province created the Hamilton Transportation Task Force and asked the task force to start from scratch, reviewing a variety of transit options. One year later, in 2020, the task force released their final report, recommending that, among other things, the province support the city in pursuing an LRT. The provincial government agreed, and along with the federal government, committed $3.4 billion in funding to build a 17-stop LRT line. At this point, LRT advocates like Ryan and Maureen held their breath, because, that's right, the project still wasn't confirmed. The federal and provincial governments provided $3.4 billion in funding to support the project, but it was still up to City Council to accept or decline that offer. In part because the LRT would only run through Hamilton's downtown core, 
Not all counselors were in favor of the plan. It was a close vote, but on June 23rd of 2021, City Council gave City staff approval to begin drafting a Memorandum of Understanding. By September 8th, the memorandum was approved, meaning that construction on the LRG project is now expected to start as early as 2022. You know, this has been an emotional roller coaster, uh, I think it's, it's fair to say. And it's gone, gone on for a long time. I think the biggest challenge is exhaustion. It's just, you know, going year after year and feeling like you're doing the same thing and nothing's changing. And there's a, there's a desire to give up. When we first started in 2007, we assumed that there would be an east-west LRT and a north-south LRT in operation by now. So compromise and, and adjusting expectations is absolutely a necessary part of the project. There have been times when, when the province initially announced full capital funding in 2015, they announced funding for a shortened line. Instead of going all the way to Centennial Parkway, it was going to stop at the Queenston traffic circle. So, I mean, on the premise that half a loaf is better than none, any progress we can make, we will take it and be delighted with it. And then that becomes the foundation on which to push for the next part. So if they decided to build in phases, that phase one would lock in at least some commitment of investment. And when people saw how well it worked, that would strengthen the argument to extend it to the phase two. So you have to be realistic. You have to accept whatever successes you can, recognize that those concessions are part of life and uh, not become so sort of blinded by having a one specific vision that you can't adjust as the circumstances evolve. Being willing to adjust expectations has been critical to the success of Hamilton Light Rail, not only because of the changing timelines of this project, but also, as Ryan explains, because Hamilton's LRT implicates so many different stakeholders. This is a project that spans multiple jurisdictions and multiple levels of government. So it's not just a matter of convincing the city to develop an LRT plan. You also have to convince the province to fund that plan and to carry it out. So definitely we have to engage meaningfully with all levels simultaneously and also encourage those levels to continue talking to each other. And so what we've done is, you know, we've had various campaigns, I guess, over the, the past 15 years. <laughs> and so we're always focused on how do we position this project so that we're ready to hit the next milestone and in such a way that we're set up to start moving towards the milestone beyond that. So we always try to think a couple of steps ahead and we've tried to make a point of keeping our messaging positive and optimistic and solution oriented rather than going negative. I mean, we've been critical at times, but mostly it's been sort of a, like a two-pronged message. You know, number one is tell council to stay the course. And, you know, they have voted literally 60 or 70 times in favor of LRT since 2007, because the project has to go through so many steps in order to get to the point where it's actually ready for funding. Then when the province uh, commits funding, the city has to accept that funding. They have to sign a memorandum of understanding. They have to dedicate staff to working with Metrolinks. They have to sign a real estate protocol. It's not just, yes, we approve LRT and it's done. It's all of these individual choices that have to get made. And every single one of those choices is an inflection point. And it's also an opportunity to put a stop. If you say yes 60 times and no once, the project is done. 
And so we have to win every single campaign that we do or else the project doesn't move forward. And that's part of why it takes so long because there are so many ways to introduce delays. Unforeseen delays at a provincial or municipal level are not the only reason that this project has taken so long. As Maureen explains, there are also challenges that come with designing a project that crosses multiple neighborhoods, financially speaking, but also with respect to community engagement. I think anytime you're doing a large infrastructure project, it's necessarily going to be weighed down with uh, some challenges. There's the alignment of, of agendas and, and budgets. You can start a consultation at the beginning of one election cycle. And because the issues are not easy, it ends when there's, a, for example, a different party in, in power politically. And so you have to figure out and, and regroup. And how do you continue to maybe engage informally in that regard? And then with a large infrastructure project that crosses multiple neighborhoods that have different priorities and needs and circumstances, you have to uh, listen to those voices and how will it impact their conditions and how could it improve their lives. And all of these uh, circumstances uh, necessitate uh, thoughtful engagement that is ne not necessarily going to be short, but it has to be constructive and respectful. Thoughtful engagement takes many different forms. Brian described how Hamilton Light Rail has continued to engage with different levels of government. But there's also engagement needed with citizens, the people who will be riding the LRT every day, or who may never use the LRT but will be impacted by its construction. For Maureen, engaging with citizens starts with conversation, not only with residents of Ward 1, but of the entire city. Personally, there, there's a, a lot of reasons why I have been an unwavering champion and supporter of LRT. But I also understand that I can't make everybody feel the same about public transit that I do. I can't make everyone care about the natural environment as I do. So I, I have a lot of time for people who feel the FUD, the fear, uncertainty, and the doubt if they don't hold elected office. Because when you hold elected office, you are in a privileged position of having access to very smart public servants whose job it is to, to read and assess and to advise. And it is your job to read reports and to ask questions. So I, I don't have a lot of patience or time or very many good things, frankly, to say about elected leaders who necessarily will seek to intentionally misinform and cast doubt. But back to how I engage citywide and think citywide, I do have time for those individual citizens who in the mix and the mess of that um, have fear and uncertainty and doubt. And when I seek intentionally to listen to them and what is that they're leading with in that fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And then I don't think that there's anything wrong in public policy or public leadership to lead with their own self-interest and speak to that self-interest and see if you can reconcile 
the two. So I have been involved in uh, speaking to small business people, for example, in Waterdown, who at the beginning have their arms crossed and say, uh, public transit down in the lower city, uh, LRT, never going to use it. How is it going to help me? And so if you engage them, if they're only interested, and there's nothing wrong somewhat, if they're interested in their taxes, then I can speak to them about the history of Hamilton's economic base and what the makeup is now and talk to them about what strategies are left for us to try and become more competitive on that front. And then we get to a position of, well, we only have a few options left and here's how LRT would fit in back to Ryan's earlier point about growing our assessment base and enriching it within an already developed urban place. And then they're like, oh, okay. And it's having those deliberate conversations and that is the responsibility of public servants to lead with facts and truth and empathy and see if you can reach an alignment without dismissing that fear and, and, and the misunderstanding or their understanding at that point, because maybe, frankly, they've had someone representing them who has not been engaging with them on how to reconcile these tensions. The need to reconcile tensions has been an important part of advocacy for both Maureen and Ryan. In the space where city policy and grassroots advocacy meet, there can sometimes be alignment of agendas and sometimes be tensions. But as Ryan explains, change processes can benefit from multiple approaches. Early on, we were holding public meetings. And once a month or once every couple of months, we would have you know a public forum with like 50 or 100 or 150 people. And that was a good structure. And actually, once the, the city's rapid transit office got seriously involved and they started holding public meetings, they came to us and asked us to stop because um, they were concerned that it was confusing that people wouldn't necessarily know if they were going to a city event or to a community event. And perhaps foolishly, we agreed with them. And so we kind of wound down that aspect of our engagement. And in retrospect, I think that was a mistake because the political momentum dried up and the public meetings that the city was organizing became more and more just, you know, checking a, a box and uh, they lost a lot of the enthusiasm that they had early on. And I think that actually added to the amount of time that the project took. Nearly 15 years after this project first began, Hamilton's LRT is finally set to begin construction. But what happens next? In the next few minutes, we will shift our attention to the future of the LRT project as we speak with Carl Andrus. Since 2017, Carl has been advocating for the LRT on behalf of the Hamilton Community Benefits Network, an organization dedicated to ensuring that when Hamilton gets an LRT, it's done in a way that ensures social and economic benefits for Hamiltonians. My name is Carl Andrus. I'm the Community Benefits Manager at the Hamilton Community Benefits Network. I've been a bit of a ramble rouser and an activist in the city of Hamilton for uh, many years, let's put it candidly. And I am very excited to, to be here today to talk about my experience and my passion, which is the Hamilton LRT and community benefits. Community benefits are the positive outcomes of a project like Hamilton's LRT on the local community. The work that Carl and others are currently doing at the Hamilton Community Benefits Network 
involves speaking with stakeholders across Hamilton so that they can create a community benefits agreement. Once complete, the community benefits agreement will ensure that Hamilton's LRT is designed, built, and operated in a way that produces a net positive outcome for the local community. So you've got a pile of residents who are going to be deeply affected by this project, whether good or bad or indifferent. Their lives are going to be changed. And you pour up buckets full of infrastructure dollars into any area. There's change that happens in that community. So the, the idea is with the community benefits is to maximize that change for the community. Your power comes from protest and from the willingness of the community to resist a project. And then uh, it's very similar to how a union may operate. So one of the benefits of a community benefits agreement is it's a legally binding commitment between government contracting firms and community to complete public infrastructure projects. So, um, part of having this agreement is that it's not a handshake. It's not a tacit thing. It's a legally binding commitment between government contracting firms and community that lays out what all parties are to provide. So it should have metrics. It should be a transparent, fair, inclusive process that you can monitor and watch. Say you've got a light rail transit line, for example, $3.4 billion are going to pour into this community. Well, who gets those jobs? Who decides what the station designs look like? Who are the artists that are employed along the line? What are the impacts of property procurement along the corridor, for example, of the Hamilton LRT? And who benefits from those property procurements? So it's a way of making sure that there's a force multiplier in large-scale capital funding for social good in a community. Hamilton's Community Benefits Network began in late 2017 in response to Bill 6, the Ontario Infrastructure for Jobs and Prosperity Act which was a mandate from the provincial government that required community benefits be a part of Hamilton's LRT project. Since 2017, Carl and others at the Hamilton's Community Benefits Network have been hosting community conversations and talking with Hamiltonians about what a community benefits agreement could look like. Community engagement is often a difficult process. It's been especially made difficult by COVID. But what we would do is we would host community conversations. So we would get out there and we would meet with people. We would have an event, provide food, and then invite 100, 150 people to the public library or go out to a community meeting, like a neighborhood meeting or a members meeting. And we would go out and first talk about what community benefits look like. And then we would sit there and, and we would work in breakout groups, basically, with people putting their ideas on paper and having discussions about what they were inspired about communities, what the challenges were in their communities, what they thought particular pitfalls were. And then we, we would collate that data into themes and topics. And then we put those themes and topics into a broader, larger survey that we hope to distribute citywide. The themes and topics identified by community members are broad, ranging from affordable housing to green roofs on station designs to accessible public washrooms and more. The process of compiling all of these different priorities into a series of clear asks is the first step in creating a successful community benefits agreement. A process that Carl explains could take several years. It's, it's not going to be a month's success. This project could be four to six years. The first success will, of course, be getting some kind of community benefits framework agreement with Metrolinks. Um, signed with the city and our community partners. The second will be the monitoring of that community benefits agreement to make sure that everybody's living up to their promises, that the metrics are being mixed. So the success will be in, you know, how many hundreds or potentially 
thousands of jobs did we create for the Hamilton community from the marginalized groups? How many people did we get literally into the trades who are now apprenticed and who are now journey persons or construction workers or rebar? So it's immeasurable. The other measurable effect is how many voices can we hear and how many things can we change? We have a lot of work ahead of us in the next six months to get talking to residents and getting residents engaged at and interested about community benefits. So it's also about getting people interested that know that they can have some effect and some change on this. So that's another not as easily quantifiable uh, metric, but is getting people engaged with the process, getting people passionate and ready to support the community benefits movement, the community benefits agreement, and to feel that they're a part of that process and that their input can be heard. Measuring the success of quantifiable metrics seems relatively straightforward. But how are these metrics achieved in the first place? As Carl explains, the process requires strong community partnerships. If we put a demand on the table to say, we want 20% of the 6,000 person year jobs to be for, for women or marginalized folks uh, or folks who live on the LRT corridor, we have to be able to provide those bodies. So that means getting developing partnerships with workforce planning, with local employment services, with the building trades and their training offices, with educational institutions like Mohawk College to make sure that the folks that are, are being educated. So some of that work is, is starting right now. So there's the workforce development piece, which is a lot of work to put together the coalition to, because there's a six to six month lead time, for example, right? The Metrolinx is going to know once their office is open, maybe in November or December, six months from now, early works uh, are going to, to start and they're going to have some idea that they're going to need contractors and they're going to need carpenters or they're going to need whatever those projects are. If we want to have people to place in those positions, the training has to start much earlier than that. So one of the things that we need to work on is to build those pieces. So those coalitions are really important and effective with social change. We can demand all we want, but if we don't have the Hamilton Brantford building trades online to help with jobs and the, the union apprenticeships, it doesn't mean much. If we don't have our partners, the Immigrant Working Center or half employment services or uh, any of those, the jobs are not going to be available. So that's why it really needs to be a community coalition. It really needs to have supportive people backing it. Supportive community is not only required to achieve workforce development goals. A strong community benefits agreement also needs community support in the form of advocacy. There's also, of course, a massive advocacy piece that we're going to, to need to work on. It's the affordable housing piece. Governments have talked extensively about LRT, affordable housing. However, the Kitchener-Waterloo-Ion LRT system did not produce any inclusionary zoning um, bylaws. Only 11 units of affordable housing were built on that corridor. Of course, there was a lot less land procurement in Kitchener-Waterloo. It was a very different project. But affordable housing, we heard time and time again in our early community conversations, was the most important piece to Hamilton. It's a dominating topic. I don't have to tell anybody, students or otherwise, Hamilton is a very unaffordable city these days to live in. Um, so affordable housing is, of course, top of the list. Now, in order to maximize the gains of affordable housing, it's not as simple as just sitting at a table with Metrolinx and saying, hey, give us some land. Metrolinx doesn't build affordable housing. They haven't done any of those projects like that. They're most likely to turn that land over to developers and say, okay, private sector, you deal with this land. So that means that we have to advocate and we need um, people 
right? And community organizations pushing on the local government to pass an inclusionary zoning bylaw in order to make sure that along the transit-oriented corridor, that they, that those affordable housings are built even by private developers. We need to push on the federal or provincial governments as well as the city government to ask for access to that land for affordable housing uses. So there's a political and an activism component to community benefits. Yes, there's a seat at the table for us to bring community demands forward. But if we don't have the power of community behind asking for that, then our, our work falls flat. Metro just will get us and go, yeah, well, we don't build affordable housing. We're a, a, a you know, we're transit provider. That's what we do. Before community priorities like affordable housing could be measured and implemented, Individual community voices need to come together to identify these priorities. This is where the community conversations that Carl mentioned fit in, and where the role of Hamilton's Community Benefits Network is to ensure that traditionally marginalized voices are included in the community benefits process, so that the change that occurs from the LRT project helps to create a more equitable Hamilton. We do a lot of listening, making sure that we listen to all of the input that we're getting with an open mind and provide the space. And that means our organizers have spent the last year just reaching out to mosques and faith groups and other organizations that aren't traditionally contacted just to see if we can open a door to talk to them about their interesting in community benefits and, and what that might be. One of the things that we missed in a lot of our original outreach that we're working right now was getting in some indigenous voices that were at the table. We had NEPAM as a partner for the workforce development piece. But there, that was one of the areas that we were really lacking in some of our first original community consultations. So it's literally getting bodies out to their meetings, meeting them where they're at and listening and making sure that we have those voices at, at the table and contributing to the process. We have one minute left, which means it's time for a recap. In this episode, we discussed theories of change, focusing on the development of Hamilton's light rail transit project. We spoke with Ryan McGreal and Councillor Maureen Wilson about the time needed for change to occur and looked at the 15-year timeline of Hamilton's LRT advocacy as a case study for the various ways that change can be made from within organizations like the City of Hamilton and Hamilton Light Rail. We also heard from Carl Andrus about the power of individual community voices joining together to ask for change in the form of community benefits. Carl also spoke about the importance of inclusive community engagement in community benefits processes. Join us next week for episode three of this series, where we will be talking about the Just Recovery Hamilton Coalition. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Art of Change. For more information about this podcast or The Art of Change course, please visit community.mcmaster.ca.